Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 2 Timothy, okay, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and let me pray while you're turning there. Father God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives us illumination. Thank you for Christ that gives us salvation. Uh, Who gives us salvation? Lord, thank you for the Westminster Divines and the men and women that have gone before us and have helped us interpret and understand and apply the Bible. We pray for this whole class um, that you would be filling us afresh, full of the Holy Spirit, to see, to listen, to understand, to perceive, to gain wisdom from your word um, so that we can apply it in our lives to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please you in all respects, and to bear fruit in every good work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, we're going to start out kind of a little exercise today. All right, so like I said, it's interactive. So either with pen and paper right where you're sitting, or you can do it if you're taking notes on a laptop, iPad, you can do that. I'm going to read this very short passage, okay, um, from 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can read along with me if you want to, or you can just listen. And here's what I want you to do. Paul is going to throw out about three or four different kind of illustrations in this very short passage. And what I want you to do is when he, when he mentions a illustration... I want you to jot down, what's the point you think Paul's trying to make? So like if he talks about, Timothy, you need to be like a soldier, what exactly does he mean? Um, Let let me just give you a a bad example. I don't think he means, Timothy, if you want to be a good minister, you need to carry a sword just like a soldier. That's not what he means, right? So I don't want you to stress over this. I want it to be quick. You're not getting graded for this. Just kind of like first thing that comes to your mind, write it down as quick and as shorthand as you can as I read. Okay, so 2 Timothy chapter 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules." It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of his crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Okay, now we're going to have very brief uh, class interaction here. I'm going to try to write on the whiteboard, um, hopefully on Zoom. Maybe you'll be able to see it, okay? But the first little illustration he gives there is of a soldier. And so I want somebody to shout out. When you heard him say, Timothy, be like a soldier, what do you think is the point? What's he trying to emphasize to Timothy? Anyone? Remember you're at war. Okay. Uh, Wartime mentality. Anybody have another thought? Follow orders. Okay. Good. Follow orders. Um, Focus. Okay. Focus. That's great. Very good. All right. Let's keep going. We'll do the next one. Um, First, he talks about a soldier. Then he talks about an athlete. What do you think he's trying to emphasize when he talks about an athlete? Discipline. Okay. Discipline. Endurance. Endurance. Fitness. Fitness. 
All right. That's good. What's the next um, illustration that he uses there? It's a farmer, farmer right? All right. So what is it, what's he talking about when we talk about a farmer? Hard work. Okay. Hard work. Sowing and planting. Okay. Good. Faithfulness. All right. This is great. Sowing, faithfulness. All right. Now, notice we had some different answers there, right? But I, don't, I would say I don't think we had any contradictory answers. We had different answers, right? Uh, the farmer, hard work. I think that's definitely part of what he's talking about. Okay, but then he's also about this sowing, and part of the idea of sowing is you have to sow, and then the implication is you're probably going to have to wait. So you could even get into patience, right? You sow seed one day, a lot of times you don't reap the fruit until months later. Not contradictory, but different meanings are brought out. Now, here's what I really want us to focus on. Look at Second Timothy, uh, chapter two, verse seven. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding everything. You got to read the Bible, right? You want to know God. But it's not just enough to read it. You you've got to slow down, you've got to ponder, you've got to perceive, you've got to mull over it in your mind to really understand. Now, why are we starting with this? Okay? Because um, you run into people sometimes that talk about uh, no creed but the Bible. You heard people say things like that, right? We don't need a Westminster Confession of Faith. We don't need any confession. We just need the Bible. And let's just be honest. That sounds really spiritual at first. I think I probably said something like that in my life, way back in high school or college, um, and I bet several of us had. But, but that's not true. And that, in some sense, that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're really going to focus, and, and I meant to say this in the introduction. I'll just say it now. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith is gigantic, and it's very full, and it's very deep, and there's no way in a 13-week class we're going to be able to mine all the depths of this confession. So the plan is to kind of drop in and out at different places and try to go deep in certain sections. And so if you're like, well, you know, I already know that I have a question from chapter 13 or something, email me and I might get to it and I might not, okay? Uh, but you have a much better chance of me getting to it if you mention it to me than if you don't mention it to me. Um, but today we're going to be looking at Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 6. Chapter 1, section 6. Okay, so let me just read Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 6. And if you've got the Westminster Confession there, which you don't have a copy of the Westminster Confession, I mean, you can download you know, free online, but I'd encourage you to get one so that you can underline and mark up and make notes on. So here's Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either, notice, so there's going to be two things, is either expressly set down in Scripture, okay, I think we'd all agree with that, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. You understand what they're saying there? They're saying, listen, everything is not plainly written down in Scripture. Some stuff is you have to read Scripture and then you have to use the brain that God has given you to draw out the implications that are needed to live the life God wants you to live. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So the canon's closed, okay? There's no new revelation. Don't add to the Bible. Again, I think we all are pretty clear on that one. Nevertheless, we acknowledge 
the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. Again, so it's not enough just to have a bare reading of the Scripture. The Holy Spirit has to show up and bring illumination to the truth that's on the page. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God. Well, that's pretty important. The government of the church, that's really important too. Common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So you understand what he's saying there in that last clause, and that's what we really want to focus on, is the Bible, in a sense, is the principle. It's the headwaters. But then some things that are really necessary to understand how to be a good Christian in modern-day society come through common grace. You have to think. You have to use the brain that God has given you. And that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul didn't just say, there it is, do it. He said, you need to spend some time thinking. You need to spend some time pondering and mulling over to really get this. All right, let me just read what a couple of commentators said about this passage. Here's uh, Donald Guthrie. If Timothy seriously attempts to grasp the meaning, the Lord will supply all needed wisdom. As the Christian ponders and applies the exhortation to his own life, the Lord will increase the powers of understanding. Paul urges such reflection on this because experience would throw further light on it as the Lord gave insight. You want to know how to live a Christian life? You need the Bible. You also need your own experience. Now, if I ever feel like my experience contradicts what the Word of God says, which one do I trust? Right? There should never be a debate. I mean, so much of what's wrong with modern day culture and this whole expressive individualism is people are looking within for truth. Well, this is what I feel. This is what I experience. That must be reality. No. Reality is the Word of God. And if my experience conforms to and backs up and explains the Word of God, beautiful, wonderful. But if my experience seems to contradict what the Word of God says, the Word of God always rules and trumps. Okay? No debate. Um, Here's Kelly. Work out what I'm getting at is a better rendering of the Greek. Paul leaves it to Timothy to discover for himself the deeper implications of his three parables, just like we kind of did as a class exercise there. And you listen, you could spend months on this one passage, I think, mining the depths of what all is Paul getting at in those three examples. And again, some of what might bring new understanding is the more experienced you got. Say, oh, I never thought about this is maybe what Paul meant by being a farmer. But after months of doing this certain ministry, now I start to think about this. Um, MacArthur, consider the means, me, excuse me, the word consider means perceive clearly with the mind, to ponder and to mull over words and mind. Under the Lord, think over. I love that phrase, okay? I need to take the Bible and I need to think about it. But even my thinking, in a sense, is under the Lord. I'm submitted to the Lord. You know, have you ever heard the phrase, or maybe some of us have even said the phrase? Again, I think this is a phrase I've said at times in my life. You can't put God in a box. Well, and I'd say, yes, that's true. I can't put God in a box. But here's, here's some nuance. I think God can put Himself in a box. Can He not? And in some sense... This is the box God has put himself into. He, and what this is, is this is him saying, here's my covenant, here's my promise, here's the way that you can trust me. I promise that I will always act according to the Scripture. I will never contradict the Scriptures. So it gives us assurance, it gives us confidence that this is a faithful revelation of his character. Okay? 
Um, Marshall, think over and so come to a right understanding. Okay, so uh, flip over to chapter three. We're going to go a little bit deeper and just kind of three brief points for today. Okay, the writings, the wisdom, and the work. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter three, let's start in verse 14. And, and remember the context. This is, this is likely days, weeks, maybe months at the most before Paul gets his head chopped off. And he knows it's coming. Right? He's in a dungeon. He's lonely. He's been in prison before. This is the worst. And he realizes, I'm not getting out this time. He has a sense this is the end. And, so, and he realizes the apostles are dying out. And so he is looking at Timothy as the next generation trying to pass down, you guys have got to be the leaders of the church now. And with that, he's exhorting Timothy. Let's look. 2 Timothy 3, start in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, Paul, by that, probably means the Old Testament Scripture, okay? Um, Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, uh, Paul is at least saying two things about the Bible here. One is that all Scripture is God-breathed. I mean, Paul literally made up a new word in the Greek, okay? God-inspired, God-breathed to get his point across. And it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. Okay, and it wasn't used anywhere else that we know of before that in, in Greek. But I don't think that's the main point he's trying to emphasize here for Timothy. I think, again, Timothy had grown up in a devout Jewish home that believed in the Old Testament, been taught the Old Testament, at least by his mother and grandmother. So he's been a, a true believer. He was a true believer under the Old Covenant, and then he's become a true believer under the New Covenant. I don't think Timothy had any doubt the Scripture is inspired by God. Most devout Jews didn't struggle with that. But here's the second thing that Paul's trying to emphasize. And probably as Paul says, I'm about to die. You're not going to be able to depend on me anymore, Timothy. We won't be able to have these letter exchanges. He says, the Word of God is all you need. It's sufficient. Okay? The writings. Okay? It can make you adequate. It can make you equipped, which means it it can fit you out. It can give you all the gear you need for ministry, all the armor that you need. It can make you proficient. It can make you complete. It can make you mature. Okay? Now, just pause with me for a second. If we were to interpret this in a wooden, literal way, and some people do, this is where you could get no creed but the Bible, no confession but the Bible. Bible's all I need. It says it right there. It says if I want to be adequate and equipped for every single good work, all I need is the Bible. Right? But maybe the most important principle of Scripture interpretation is you interpret Scripture in light of what? Of the Scripture, right? And Paul was the guy that just in the chapter before said, you got to spend a lot of time thinking over this, Timothy. And if you interpret this in a wooden, literal fashion, it doesn't work. It's kind of like, yeah, you don't need to think. You just read it. It's obvious. Go and do. Okay? No, I need to spend time thinking. Why? Because I'm trying to glean wisdom from the Scripture. It's not enough just to have the Scripture bare bones. Okay? I've got to glean the wisdom the Scripture is bringing to me. Hey, look again at what he says in, uh, well, let's do 14 and 15 again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? The scriptures are not an end in themselves. The scriptures are giving me wisdom. Now, a lot of times in modern day, when we use the word salvation, we tend to primarily or exclusively mean justification. Right? The, the door to get into salvation. Oftentimes when Paul uses the word salvation, he means it in a more holistic way. He means the whole package. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And so in a sense what he's saying to Timothy is, Hey, Timothy, how did you get justified? How did you get into the door of salvation? It came through your experience with the Scriptures, your knowledge of the Scriptures, the wisdom the Scriptures gave you. And he's saying, And Timothy, how are you going to continue to grow in salvation? How are you going to get sanctified? It's going to continue to be the Scriptures. Keep going back to the Scriptures. They are the headwaters. Never leave the Scriptures. Always be grounded in the Scriptures. Always be tethered to the Scriptures. Just like immersion in the Scriptures is what led you to justification, continual immersion in the Scriptures is what will lead you to sanctification. And then why? That last verse again. That the man of God. Now again, Paul is almost certainly primarily thinking of full-time ministers right now. But the, the principle from the greater, so to speak, to the lesser... It's like this is for every Christian. Every Christian. You want to be equipped to do the good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. you got to know the Scripture. you got to be about the Scriptures. Read, study, memorize, meditate. That the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Now, I want us to think by way of application for a second. Because like with so many truths in the Christian life, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Okay? Now, the first ditch that we'll talk about briefly, because I don't think many of us are in danger of being in this ditch, is to underemphasize the importance, the power, and the centrality of the Bible. But there are a ton of people in our culture that are falling into this ditch, are there not? And there are even a ton of people in the evangelical church that are falling into this ditch, right? You can go to some churches that, that probably are actual gospel churches, right? They're a legit church. They might be a bare minimum church. Because they're so seeker-sensitive and they're in danger of prosperity gospel and all sorts of stuff and seeker-sensitive. They get the basic gospel right. We're not sure if they get much else right. right? But they get 1 Corinthians 15 stuff. We're sinners. We need a Savior. Jesus died and rose according to Scriptures. Faith alone will save you. But it's like, other than that, and you might go to a church service there and they might read one verse and talk about it for two minutes and the next 40 minutes could almost be like a self-help sermon. Right? And there's certainly books out there like that. And I'll tell you one thing, because I know a lot of people in this class are involved in college ministry or high school ministry. One of the things I've seen with a ton of young people is that they're, they're, I think are real Christians that are really hungry to grow. It's like, hey, how's your personal time alone with the Lord been going lately? And they might say, great, I've been using this Tim Keller devotional or I've been using whatever, you know, John Eldridge or who, whoever it is. And it's like, listen, I'm all for reading other books. I love to read. But that should never take the place of the Bible. Read the Bible. I mean, this is one thing I'm always talking about. I'm like, hey, buddy, how, how, how's your time in the Word been going? Well, Dad, I've been reading this book. You know, it's a Christian book. It's really great. I'm like, praise the Lord. Number one, I'm just glad you're reading, right? Uh, number two, I'm glad you're reading a Christian book. But I really wish you'd read the Bible, you know? I really wish that you would prioritize time in the Bible. But a lot of young, immature Christians, they kind of see the Bible. They probably never say this out loud, but when you look at the practice of their life, it's kind of like they see the Bible as just one among many good options of devotionals. Or maybe sermons, you know. 
I've been listening to this great guy online. Great. I'm all for podcasts. Use modern technology to feed yourself. But the more Bible-centered you can be, the better. Now, my guess is most of us in this seminary class don't fall into that ditch. But there is a ditch on the other side of the road that just honestly, I think sometimes we don't even believe there's a ditch on the other side of the road. But this is the ditch that some of us might be a little bit more prone to fall into sometimes. And I'm almost going to sound like a heretic when I say it, but I, you know, give me five minutes to convince you before you storm out of the class or shut me down on Zoom, okay? You can overemphasize the importance, the power, and the centrality of the Bible. That is a danger, okay? Now, um, I'll give an example in a minute, but I want to kind of build my case for... Uh, I have had people come to me. Let me just give a personal example, okay? I have been teaching somewhere, maybe a men's Bible study, something like that. And I will quote somebody, like Tim Keller. And, and I have had people come up to me, men I respect, elders in the church, said, you know, you, took, you quoted Tim Keller in that lesson, and I'm just, I'm really worried about you. And I'll say, well, thank you for coming and talking to me. I really appreciate this. Why are you concerned? Like, well, I think Tim Keller's a heretic. Okay, those are strong words. Can you tell me why? Well, I think he's taught a lot of bad stuff about, you know, evolution, creation, and they just kind of go on. I say, okay, could, could you tell me specifically? Well, no, I just, you know, a friend of mine told me, though, he teaches a lot of really bad stuff. Now, listen, I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that argument. But it has been interesting that people that come like, you're in danger, when I'm like, give me a specific example, all of a sudden they go real silent, number one. And then number two, even if they could give me a specific example, what I want to say back to them is, well, who's your favorite teacher in the whole wide world? And maybe they say Sinclair Ferguson, right? He's Scottish, he's Presbyterian, he's old, he's got the accent, he, right? I mean, who wants to argue with Sinclair? It's like, praise the Lord. Do you think he's infallible? I mean, is he Jesus? Is he the fourth person of the Trinity that we just haven't discovered yet? Here, here's my point. Anytime you are reading anything other than the Bible, there's the danger of something being fallible. I have to learn to eat the chicken and spit out the bones. I always have to read, okay, with eyes wide. When I read the Bible, in a sense, hear this in the right way, there's a sense in which I can relax. Now, I hope you don't hear me saying be passive. I mean, I'm saying lean in and think. But everything I read, I never have to wonder, hmm, was Paul right or wrong about this? He's always right. Well, I don't understand it. It seems like a contradiction. That's just because I'm immature and I ain't figured it out yet. Keep wrestling with the Word. Whereas whoever else I'm reading, even John Calvin, he might contradict himself at some point. Okay? So, um, now, let me go a step further. Uh, Paul has times in the New Testament where he quotes pagan poets. Right? We're all familiar with this. Can anybody think of an example off the top of their head? Athens. Okay, he does it in Athens. Okay, he does it in First Corinthians uh, chapter fifteen, verse thirty-three. So, Pastor Reader, the church here at Broward, one of the things that he loves to say that's so helpful, he says, "You know what? Even a broken clock is right twice a day." I had to hear him say that about three times before I figured out what he meant because I was thinking about a digital clock, you know. But his point was, you know, you think about an old-timey clock on the wall that just is broken. It's dead. It doesn't work. It has no life in it. At least twice a day, it's going to show you the correct time. And so if Paul could say there are some things the pagans say that are true, 
by common grace. And I'm going to put that into Scripture. So, oh, now, by the way, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, even though in some sense it started with some pagan. That might mean that I or a modern-day writer or teacher can do the same thing. And be real careful before you criticize somebody because of one person they quoted. Does that make sense? Okay. And, and kind of a side note, in my experience, people will get much more up in arms about the modern-day person that you quote that they don't like. But if you quote C.S. Lewis, who I love C.S. Lewis, but he also said some really crazy things, it's like, well, he's been dead for 50 years, so who cares? He can say whatever the heck he wants. Okay? So I would just say we need to be more gracious with ourselves and others about who we quote. Now, how do I determine is that a good, good pagan poet to quote or not? Does it align with Scripture? And if it aligns with Scripture, and I think this might be part of the thinking process that helps me understand Scriptures better, great, quote the person. If it contradicts Scripture, you obviously don't quote it. Okay. Um, here's one of my life principles. Don't try to be more spiritual than the Bible. Okay? If it was good enough for Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to do it, it can be good enough for me and you in the right time and way. So, um, here is an illustration that I think has helped me a lot. Let's say that the goal of life is to get rich. Okay, don't worry, I'm not going off into prosperity gospel. All right, this is just an illustration. All right, but for sake of this illustration, the goal of life is to get rich, and the only way to be rich is to have gold, silver, and precious jewels. Right, money, currency doesn't count. Gold, silver, precious jewels, and for sake of this illustration, there's one gigantic cave. Some gigantic cave or cavern down here in, what are the, you know, I don't know, it doesn't matter. There's some cave about 30 minutes south of Birmingham and Silicaga. Let's just say that cave and cavern is the only place in the world that you can find gold and silver and precious jewels. And so I tell y'all, guys, the goal of life is to get rich. The only way to do it is have gold and jewels and silver. And they're all in this cavern 30 minutes south of Birmingham in Silicaga. Let's go there and get our jewels and be rich. And we get there, and some of you just show up with nothing in your hands. Okay, Others of you show up with a pickaxe, a shovel, maybe a rope so you can descend into the cavern. Or what? Maybe someone shows up with a power drill or something. Now, at some level, the people that show up with nothing in their hands, they might feel super spiritual for a second. What do you need a shovel for? He said all the jewels, all the riches are in the cave. I, I don't care about shovels. I care about the cave. But somebody may say, yeah, I, I care about the cave too. But the shovel is going to help me get into the cave and get out of the cave what I want. Does that make sense? I mean, even in preparing this lesson over the last week, I used commentaries. I've already quoted some. Okay? I quoted John MacArthur. And listen, who in the world wants to say that they are more committed to the sufficiency of the Bible than John MacArthur? Right? But if I heard right, most of us in this class are Presbyterians, okay? Even the Baptists are becoming Presbyterians. And so John MacArthur at least gets it wrong on one thing because he doesn't believe in baptizing babies, according to us. And yet, it's okay to quote John MacArthur. I use some Greek dictionaries, okay? Uh, you know, I use Bible works. I even used Wikipedia at one point, okay? Look something up. If it helps you understand more of the scripture it's good for that purpose in some sense am i exalting wikipedia no i have no love for wikipedia but if it's a helpful shovel to help me dig something out of the bible great i don't have any particular love for the westminster confession of faith guys 
But if it helps me dig something out of the Bible, and I think it helps me dig a lot out of the Bible, then it's a great shovel. It might even be the best power drill out there, right? But it's not the cave full of jewels the Bible is. And the Westminster Confession of Faith or whatever else out there is what helps me get there. Does that make sense? Let me go a step forward, and this may be dangerous and step on some toes, okay? But there are some Christian counselors that in the name of saying the Bible alone is sufficient, and I think they have good motivation, right? They, they don't want all this Freudian theology coming into the counseling room, but they're like, only counsel the Bible. Well, what if, what if somebody says, I want to use a personality test? I mean, I'll, I do a lot of marriage counseling, and some of what I'll do sometimes is use a personality test, and I don't even care which one. I'll just ask this couple because I don't want to waste my time. I'm like, what personality test have you already taken? And if they're like Myers-Briggs, I'm like, great, I know that one, let's talk about it. If they say DISC, I'm like, great, I know that one, let's talk about it. If they say cultural index, great, I know that one, let's talk about it. And there's about five that I know. If they say one I don't know, I'm like, well, maybe take one that I do know. Now, is, am I saying the DISC test is given to us by God and should be venerated as inspired? No, it's a tool. And to say that that's ruining my counseling and making it not Christian enough is just silliness. As long as everything that I use in evangelism, in discipleship, in mentoring, in coaching, in preaching, in counseling, submits to and fits with under the Bible, it's fair game. It's legitimate. Okay? So, here's Vincent. This is a a Puritan who wrote a little uh, commentary on the Shorter Catechism. Which may, that may be a good book to get if you're studying for the Westminster Confession test. All duties which we are bound to practice as means in order to the attainment of this chief end of man must be squared and conformed unto this rule. Right? It, anything that you want to teach or preach or counsel or put into your discipleship, it must be squared and conformed to the rule of the Bible. But it doesn't necessarily have to be written in here chapter and verse. Jerry Bridges, this is a great quote by him. He said, none of us are smart enough or spiritual enough to dig out various truths of scriptures by ourselves. We need other people. We need other commentators. We need other preachers. We need other confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me just give you one really practical example. Does anybody know off the top of their head what 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says? If you do, shout it out. If not, keep your finger in 2 Timothy because we're coming right back. But just flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 really quick. Is it show yourself as a worker approved? No, that is a great guess though. Okay, It says this, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. Well, what that first phrase there, bodily training, what he's really talking about is physical exercise. And if you know anything about Paul, he loved to use illustrations about people sprinting, people wrestling, things like that. So Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, physical exercise is a good thing. It has some profit in your life. And I think we'd all agree, if you want to be a faithful steward of your body, you need to have some kind of physical exercise. But if you were, you know, New Year's resolution time, right? Most of us have already quit our New Year's resolution. But, you know, just rewind three weeks ago when you still had all that hope and optimism and you were putting together your physical, you know, goals for the year before you were going to give up on January the 11th. And how much help is the Bible going to be in coming up with your physical exercise regime? Not, listen, it's helpful as the headwaters saying you need to have one. 
Be a good steward of your body. But if you want to get real, I mean, four of these guys were in my seminary class uh, last semester, and we got into some funny discussions about should you do more burpees or heavy squats or whatever, okay? And you know what I said to them? I said, Second Hezekiah chapter 7. No, I didn't say that because it's not in there. It's practical wisdom. It's common grace. You have to use the brain that God gave you to take the verse, interpret it, and then apply it into your own life. Okay? This is the box that God has put himself into. We can't violate it. We can never contradict it. Okay? And yet, it doesn't mean that we can't use other sources like the confession to help us understand and apply the Bible to our life. Now, again, some of y'all may not be convinced. Is, is that really somebody overemphasizing the importance of the Bible? Just listen to this verse, because I bet you've heard it before. Fairly famous. This is from John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees that I think fell into this ditch in some ways. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Many of the Pharisees had the entire Pentateuch memorized. Some of them may have even had the entire Old Testament memorized. In some sense, I mean, practically speaking, they were even more devoted to the Scriptures than we are and some of their practices. And yet, because of this kind of wooden literalism, they literally missed God in the flesh standing right in front of them. As I said before, guys, the Scripture is maybe the most important practical thing we have in life. And yet it's not an end unto itself. The Scripture is meant to give us wisdom, wisdom unto salvation. The Scripture is meant to lead us to Jesus. Right? You remember in Luke chapter 24, verses 27, and then verses 44 and 45, Jesus basically says, the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms... They're all about me. They all point to me. And if you read it and you don't see me, you've missed it. It's a very relational text. So let me conclude with this. I love my wife. She's not perfect. She's not Jesus. Uh, but she's my best friend. I'm enthralled with her. We're coming up on 24 years. You know, I was telling her the other day in front of my daughter, I said, I love you more today. I like you more today. I enjoy you more today than I did the day we got married. And my 15-year-old daughter's like, is that a good thing, Dad? I was like, yes, it's a good thing. Trust me. You'll, you'll understand when you're older. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, my mother-in-law lives in town. Every once in a while, not very often, okay? Let's be realistic. But every once in a while, I might actually want to go talk to my mother-in-law to understand something more about my wife because she had experiences my wife when she was a little girl growing up that I don't know about, and maybe even my wife doesn't remember <laughs> Just going to be really honest here. My mother-in-law is not my favorite person in the whole wide universe to hang out with. But if at times I think my mother-in-law can be a tool, so to speak, in the most gracious, godly way, I mean that, not using her, but a tool to help me understand and know and experience and love and enjoy my wife better, then I'm happy to go to that tool. Does that make sense? And guys, there shouldn't be any tool in the universe, in God's common grace that He has given us, that if it helps take us to Jesus and the Jesus of the Scriptures, not the made-up Jesus in my own heart, the Jesus of the Scriptures, that I shouldn't say I'm happy to use that tool if it helps me know my Savior. 
who not only justifies me, but he's also the one that sanctifies me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. As I read the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit illuminates the eyes of my heart to see the glory of God in Christ, the risen Savior, I get supernaturally transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That's how my mind gets renewed, primarily, by seeing not just the Scriptures in general, but seeing the glory of Christ in the Scriptures. And that's part of why the Westminster Confession is such a great tool because it enhances, not like makes it better, but it magnifies for us the glory of Jesus so that we can see it more clearly. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, please bless today in this whole class to help us see you more clearly and truly love you and follow you more for your glory and our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.